This is an ABC podcast. Massive quantities of radiation have apparently been released in an accident at the Chernobyl power station in the Ukraine. Many thousands of people live in the vicinity and signs are that a big relief operation is underway. If you think coal has an image problem, spare a thought for nuclear power. The Kremlin acknowledged there'd been an accident, but only after Scandinavian scientists had picked up high radiation levels. A statement from the... Three Mile Island, Fukushima and Chernobyl. All three disasters, it turns out, have had a long half-life. The world has almost bifurcated into those that have really walked away very aggressively from nuclear energy, even those that were involved, and others that are embracing it. So it's so difficult to pick where things are going to go. It's a really, really hard one to pick. It may not be everybody's choice as a replacement for fossil fuels, but the technology is evolving. New reactors are being built and researchers are working on making them smaller and more mobile. In this episode of Future Tense, a timely overview of the diversity and scale of the nuclear energy sector and the changes and challenges it faces. His Excellency, Antonio Guterres. Distinguished delegates, ladies, gentlemen, and distinguished guests. The opening of this conference is testimony... And I say timely, because with the UN's COP26 discussions now underway in Glasgow, nuclear energy is guaranteed to be among the mix of topics. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to the programme. Unfortunately, when a lot of people think about nuclear energy, they do think of Fukushima and Chernobyl. These particular reactors were designed and constructed between the 1960s and the 1980s. So I like to call them VCR-era reactors because this is when VCR players were invented and became popular. You can still watch your favourite movie on a VCR player today, but the technology has evolved. Dr Joe Lackenby, President of the Australian Nuclear Association. I know what I want my vision of nuclear to be, and that's making quite a substantial contribution to the world's decarbonisation efforts. But let's look at what the experts have to say, right? (laughs) There's the International Energy Agency and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change both say that we need, we being the world, needs more contribution from nuclear by 2050. In some cases, double what we have now. In some cases, up to five times what we have now. We know that a lot of nuclear plants are ageing because they were constructed in the 1980s, which means the world needs to replace ageing plants or keep ageing plants operating as long as technically feasible, replace them if necessary, and then build more on top of it. This is what the expert organisations are saying to limit our emissions down to that one and a half and two degree mark. Now, one thing to note is that nuclear power technology isn't evenly distributed across the globe. Some countries, like Australia, never really embraced it, while others see it as a part of their future. The state of nuclear energy around the world is there are 442 nuclear power reactors operating in 32 countries. There's also a few hundred research reactors operating, plus reactors on submarines, aircraft carriers and icebreakers. In terms of nuclear power, there's 51 nuclear power reactors under construction in 19 countries, and there's hundreds more planned around the world. 
at this point in time, it's approximately 10% of the world's electricity generation. Now, that sounds like the industry is booming, and yet the World Nuclear Report suggests that there are fewer reactors operating today than there were 30 years ago. How do we square those two? Well, I can talk a little bit about 2021 so far. So this year, there's been five new connections to the grid, five permanent shutdowns and four new construction starts. So there was definitely a boom of nuclear energy back in the 70s and 80s, when a lot of today's nuclear power plants were built, and not so much construction in the last 20 years or so. But there's some exciting developments underway that we should start to see coming to market in the 2020s. And this is an exciting time for these new developments. And is the renewed interest in nuclear energy in many countries, is that driven by concerns about climate change? I think it's driven by a few different concerns. Climate change is obviously a big one and nuclear energy does have extremely low life cycle carbon emissions. There's also concerns around energy reliability. So right now in Europe, there's problems with energy reliability because the wind's dropped and there isn't enough gas. So prices have gone really high at the moment in Europe. And the third reason for the countries that are considering nuclear is because of energy poverty. We know that about 800 million people in the world don't have access to electricity right now, and many billions have access to a lot less electricity than we have in Australia. So there are three main reasons, environmental, so climate change, reliability of supply, and energy poverty. And the new projects and planned constructions, where are they happening in the world? So most of the new builds are predominantly in Asia. Um, That's where 60% of the world's population is, so this part of the world does need lots of energy. There's approximately 51 reactors under construction, and a lot of those are being constructed in China right now. So China is really leading the way, not only in nuclear energy, but also wind and solar. They're putting in a lot of every kind of energy generating technology possible. There's also new constructions going on in the UK, the US, Russia, the United Arab Emirates, many different countries around the world. Now, China's involvement, we know when China started to produce solar cells that brought the price down significantly just simply because of the size of their market. Is there an expectation that their involvement with nuclear power will also have that kind of transformative effect? At the moment, China's building reactors of all the different designs that are pretty much available right now. And they're doing a lot of research and development into small modular reactors, advanced reactors and other reactors of the future. There's other countries also that have big plans for nuclear in future, especially of the small modular reactor variety, in particular Canada and the US and countries like that. So what I'm hoping to see is a lot of interest in small modular reactors, lots of orders to bring the prices down. Dr Joe Lackenby. We've done a lot of work in the nuclear industry for many years. I myself have been working in it for over 15 years. And we've seen, I guess, the good and the bad of the nuclear industry in terms of certainly the construction side and the time and cost overrun that can occur. And the thing about small modular reactors as a term is it encompasses an awful lot of different forms of technology and approaches. Now, at the moment, there's around in excess of 70 different designs in in the design process or in design stages that runs the full gambit of nuclear technology. And so there are many different characteristics to small modular reactors, depending on what sort of technology you're using and how they're then being delivered. The world got a taste of what small modular reactors might look like back in 2019, when the Russian government unveiled a floating one. 
This is academic Lomonosov, loaded with nuclear fuel, bound for Russia's remote Far East. Russia's nuclear agency says the reactor... The one in Russia, the first operating one, is positioned on a ship which can move around from port to port and potentially deliver energy in, in different locations. But I think what a lot of people are talking about with small modular reactors at the moment are ones that may be located on a permanent site, but because of their size, they can be mobile also. I think what small modular actors will also do is bring nuclear within the reach of many countries who have a desire to have nuclear power within their energy mix, but currently can't afford to. So a lot of state entities will be interested in this. And I think potentially also industry will be interested in this. I'm not sure they will lead the way in initial procurement. I think that will probably come from state entities. But I think once it is proven technology and once the efficiencies and the costs can be driven down and stabilized, I think we'll see other energy intensive industries and industries that require heat as well, because of course a reactor can deliver both heat and electrical power will be very interested in how they could use small modular reactors to facilitate their industries. In the past, you only got economies of scale by making reactors large, but of course that meant that you had to do all of the assembly on site and you had very complicated construction programs. You have to do verification, obviously, as you do the build. Nigel Marks, Associate Professor of Physics at Curtin University. And so the idea with the SMR concept is to do the exact opposite. So you reduce the size of, of the reactor. You can then do the fabrication of the key elements that require high level of quality control uh, in a single factory where you have complete oversight over the process. And then using you know, conventional transport methods, so trains would be particularly convenient. You just move them around if you're on the same continent, for example, in the US, and then you install these small units that are far simpler to maintain and don't have the same in a sense, engineering footprint at the place where they're built. So, you know, it could be great for remote areas where you just need a bit of power, but you don't need a conventional one or two gigawatt facility. Certainly the industry's presentation of the small modular reactor is that it improves safety. And they say it does that for a number of reasons. One, through the construction process, which can potentially be done in factories, which allow you to improve quality control, et cetera. To the just the size of them. So they are smaller, which means they contain less fuel, but they're also running at lower pressures and lower heats potentially, which means the risk of accidents is lower and the consequence of an accident is potentially less. They rely on passive safety systems in many respects, which are safety systems which activate upon an accident occurring without requiring external activation. So far, nuclear technology has been very much under government control. Is there a risk to factor in if this technology, if it is able to be more accessible to different groups, to different industries and different communities, does that pose a, a potential issue around regulation? The nuclear industry, I suspect, is always going to be under government control. The regulator will always be an entity of the state. So I don't think that's going to go away even where there are private entities involved in the operation or the procurement and then operation of nuclear power. And there already are private entities involved in the procurement and operation of nuclear power. There may be more, they are still going to be subject to the same regulatory regime and will need to comply with that just like anyone else. Just going back a bit, could I get you to explain to us some of the differences, some of the, the key differences between the different models that are being anticipated and developed? 
nuclear reactors are often categorized in terms of their generation. So there was generation two was regularly built, I think probably in the 80s. Generation three reactors really started being built in the early 2000s and are the main form of reactor still being built today. And they are primarily a pressurized water reactor, which involves essentially two circuits, a primary circuit, which involves the reactor itself, usually reactor coolant pumps, steam generators, and a pressurizer. And then you have a secondary circuit, which through the steam generator converts the heat from the primary circuit fluid through to the secondary circuit. And that then generates steam to drive a turbine. Now, that technology is, I think, probably going to be certainly in, in the front running SMRs, the technologies that's primarily utilized. But there are lots of other technologies which are referred to as fourth generation technologies. And a lot of those involve what's called fast reactors. And they, rather than using a water moderator, they use molten sodium or other molten metals as a coolant, but not a moderator. And so I'm not a scientist, so I won't try to explain the detail of the, the energy process, but they don't slow down the neutron reactions. So they generate energy in a slightly different way, which, which has pros and cons associated with it. One of the issues the industry is going to have to face is at the moment, there are too many designs on the table. And so nuclear as a technology has proven technology associated with it. Where they are utilizing third generation technology, I think the real issue will be around proving that they offer the advantages that they do. And so by that, I mean, will you be able to drive down cost and time? Do they really deliver the safety benefits that they claim to? And establishing those issues is really the hurdles for the use of third generation technology in, in small modular reactors, I think. The fourth generation designs, I think, have further issues to deal with in terms of establishing their viability as a technology. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. today on the program, we're looking at developments in nuclear energy technology and the industry's future. As we heard earlier, China is investing heavily in nuclear reactors and nuclear research. And one interesting aspect of their approach is that they're experimenting with the idea of replacing uranium with the element thorium. Now, in the early days of nuclear energy, thorium was considered an alternative fuel source but then rejected. Nigel Marks explains why. So thorium has been of interest you know, for maybe 70, 80 years. And the reason is that there is a lot of energy in a thorium atom that can be released the same way that you can do with uranium. The, the similarity is that both of them can, under the right conditions, be split apart and E equals MC squared does its work and you generate a lot of heat. That's the similarity. The difference is that with uranium, you can use natural uranium that you dig up out of the ground and under the right conditions, you can make uranium fall apart. With thorium, there's an extra step. You have to convert it, in fact, into a, one of the forms of uranium, and that's then the atom that undergoes the fission reaction. And the other difference is that thorium is two elements to the left on the periodic table, and so you have uh, different chemistry as well. So you have two extra problems that made thorium a more complicated beast to work with 
it was nowhere near as easy. What are the perceived advantages that thorium has over uranium? There's a, a list of them that people like to point to. One of the, the ones that does have some serious legs is that because thorium is, like I said, two elements to the left on the periodic table, then the process of running the nuclear reaction doesn't produce the same level of long-lived radioactive waste, like material like plutonium and, and neptunium and other elements that people have never heard of. It means that you've got a, a more tractable waste stream is probably the best way to put it. So it still does produce some radioactive material that needs to be dealt with in some way, but not to the same extent. So that's a fairly attractive thing. Another thing is there is a lot of thorium around the world, probably a bit more than uranium, not a deal breakers amount more, but it's a resource that we really have no current use for. So it has its benefits. And what do we know about the specifics of China's thorium research? So the thing that's really interesting about what China is doing is that they're revisiting a completely different reactor design that historically was put in the too hard basket because the engineering and the understanding of materials wasn't sufficiently advanced at the time. So what they're looking at, they resuscitated a, a reactor design called a molten salt reactor, which is a good match for the needs of, of thorium, but it could equally well work with uranium. So that's just a, an important thing to point out. And why would they be interested in thorium, though? First of all, it's a very energy-hungry country, so that's completely obvious. Uh, there's been a few stories in the press recently of the problems that they're having over in China at the moment as they try and wean themselves off coal. It's really very impressive, really, compared to the rest of the world that just seems unwilling to put big bucks. China's gone in hard in many different technologies. In the nuclear world, they're looking at conventional reactors, so-called fast reactors, which are a different approach to trying to generate energy through fission. And then now also with these molten salt designs that might solve the thorium problem. So it's a very attractive thing for them to have a diverse base. And especially if they end up being the leaders in the world, then people will come to them and buy the technology, which historically hasn't happened. Normally, China has been an importer of technology. And this be one of the first big items where the, the world might come to them and say, geez, we wouldn't mind one of those. The other advantage for this particular reactor style they're looking at is that its water needs are reduced. Most reactors in the world at the moment, 95% of them, use water as the active coolant. There's still water also on the power generation side, just like any power plant. But in a thorium reactor, you don't have that coolant water side. So arid regions become competitive for this technology. So China's experiment with thorium and molten salt cooling is showing promise. But does Professor Mark see a time when thorium might rival uranium as the nuclear fuel of choice? The real answer at the moment is we won't know. Anyone who's been working or watching the nuclear world for a long time are extremely interested to see what they find out. So what they're doing at the moment is a it's like a test system, like it's, it's a modest reactor, but it's at scale. It's not just in the laboratory. One of the things that will matter enormously is the corrosion that happens from these high temperature salts. They're aggressive chemical environments and that the devil will be in the detail for whether these things actually work. But if they can make it work, the world will have a, a new way of generating power through either thorium or uranium. One of the other things that the molten salt design has very much in its favour is that it's less vulnerable to the types of accidents that have occurred around the world. So there are different ways of engineering safety into a, a nuclear reactor. And the best way of doing it, the gold standard, if I dare say that, is to have so-called passive safety, where the, the physics and the chemistry and the fluid flow dynamics of the situation are such that if something goes wrong, for example, there's a temperature excursion, 
then the reaction self-terminates. So the, the last thing you want in a reactor is a runaway condition. So the molten salt design is definitely a big step forward in safety for reactors. Safety is also the focus of another research project trying to improve nuclear energy's reputation while also doing something for the environment. At the Belgium Nuclear Research Centre, they're working on an experimental reactor that can run on nuclear waste. It's called the Mirror Project, and it's basically an exercise in nuclear recycling, using two processes called petitioning and transmutation. The project's head is Professor Hamid Ayed Abdurrahim. First of all, like any recycling, you have to select different rubbishes, separate them, so sort the rubbish. So when we are getting the nuclear fuel out of the nuclear reactor, we do make what we call partitioning first, means separating different radioactive waste we are collecting in that fuel. And the major part of that is still uranium and plutonium, about 950 kilogram out of one ton of used fuel that we can recycle as a new fuel. So then you are left with about 2.5 kilogram of heavier elements than uranium and plutonium that we call minor actinides. And this one that we will be transmuting. And the other 50 kilogram, which is remaining, are what we call the fission product. So the element coming out of fissioning the heavy uranium or plutonium. So transmutation comes then after to take those minor actinide and also plutonium, then by doing so, separating the large part and recycling. Secondly, the minor actinide also separate them and fission them, make energy out of that, then also recycling. You leave only about 50 kilograms per ton that goes into geological disposal. We reduce the volume we have to manage by a factor 100. And in terms of time of burden, with a factor 1,000. Now, it's complicated, but what that means is that after recycling the nuclear waste, there's far less of it, and the length of time it will remain radioactive is reduced from 300,000 years to 300. Of course, 300 years is still a long time, but the value of Professor Abdurrahim's reactor is that while it's making electricity, it's also reducing the quantity and toxicity of the world's existing stockpile of radioactive nuclear waste. The impact is, first of all, because I say recycling, means from the same quantity of uranium ore, I will make up to 100 more energy from the same quantity. Today, if we look to the world reserves of uranium, if we take the present day of nuclear plants we have worldwide and we have a grow of about 2% per year, we will exhaust the world reserves after 200 years. Now I'm telling you, by going this way of recycling and reusing, you multiply by a factor 100, means that you have a potential of 20,000 years of energy that make a big difference in terms of what we can do with this energy. As I understand it, this is still at the research stage. Where are you at in terms of this technology being operational? How far off is that? 
Today, the research in this field is conducted for more than 25 years. So today, in this technology, we are at the level of moving from the lab demonstration to the pre-industrial scale demonstration. And we believe that is today doable within a decade or two decades from now. So against 2040, the pre-industrial demonstration in all the steps we have to demonstrate will be made. And why you need the pre-industrial scale? Because you need to project the economical cost of this operation. From the scientific point of view, at the lab scale, there is no doubt. We are not dreamers. This has been shown. But now what we are looking for is the economic evaluation of the technology. How much will it cost to do the job at industrial scale? And so therefore, we need this pre-industrial, what we are doing today. Professor Hamid Ayed Abdurrahim, head of the Mirror Project at the Belgium Nuclear Research Centre. He's also their Deputy Director General. So in summary, for all the experimentation that's currently underway, improving safety and lowering costs will be the key factors determining whether or not the nuclear energy sector has a viable long-term future. And as regards the latter, there's a feeling in some quarters that renewables have already stolen a march, that nuclear will always struggle to be competitive. Joe Lackenby from the Australian Nuclear Association. Absolutely, the cost of renewables has been coming down. Let's just do a quick comparison. Let's compare the cost of, say, 300 megawatts of solar to 300 megawatts of nuclear. Does nuclear cost more? It does. I'm happy to admit that because it does cost more to construct. But this is only part of the story. It's this thing called a capacity factor, and this is how often the plant is operating for. So in the US, they run their nuclear plants at a capacity factor of about 93%. So 93% of the time, their plants are running at full power. For solar in the US, they run their solar facilities at about 25% capacity. So 25% of the time, the solar plant is generating electricity. So what you really need to do to do a fair comparison between nuclear and renewables is to take into account the firming or the backup costs for the renewable technologies and include it in the price of the renewables. Then you also need equipment to maintain system strength as well, because renewables are intermittent. And because renewables are often placed in more remote locations, there's also the cost of transmission lines to consider to join your wind farm or solar farm onto a bigger grid structure. And because renewables by their very nature are intermittent, there's not much we can do about this. We also need transmission lines across states, so more interconnectors. So yes, nuclear costs more to build. It's called a higher overnight cost. But when you include the capacity factor, the firming and backup, maintaining system strength, and all the extra transmission lines, then you're comparing apples with apples. No technology is the silver bullet when it comes to climate change. Data shows that nuclear energy is actually far safer than fossil fuels and as safe as other low carbon technologies. So we know from the World Health Organization that at least 7 million people die each year from air pollution. And this is from burning things, including coal, gas and oil. Nuclear accidents are rare and they're well publicized. 
I don't think anyone has a desire for renewable energies to be replaced by nuclear power. The question is really whether or not they are a viable alternative or even necessary to provide a baseload, which in many countries is still being provided by fossil fuels. People are always writing obituaries for nuclear energy. Certainly true that some countries have walked away, while others, especially in the Middle East and the so-called developing world, are giving it a good crack. So it's, it's a really, really hard one to pick. So I'm super interested to see where nuclear power ends up. I think it still has a real role to play. It's certainly a, a watch this space item. Associate Professor Nigel Marks ending today's program. Before him, Daniel Garten and Dr Joe Lackenby. We also heard from Professor Hamid Aid Abdurrahim. My colleague and co-producer here at Future Tense is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.